So you can keep 1 Corinthians, Matthew 7, and Colossians open. They'll also be on the screen for you because I'm going to jump between all three. But first, yes, you have royally messed me up because you're all sitting in different places. Last Sunday when I suggested that you move seats and change pews, there was an audible response like this (gasps) in the congregation. Um, So let's not lose the forest for the trees. You change spaces. But the reason for that, I'm afraid that I shocked so many of you that you forgot what I said after that about um, that we're here to increase our knowledge and our love for one another. And so you might meet someone new or get to know someone simply by where you sit. And um, so don't forget to get to know someone and increase your knowledge and love for someone that's sitting near you if you decided to switch seats. Bob Breyer brought this to my attention, and you may have read it um, in the middle of the week, uh, the editorial in the Lincoln Journal Star, and um, it's, you've heard these stories. A couple things happened in Lincoln a few weeks ago. Two stories that they're writing about uh, from a couple weeks ago. One of them made international headlines. Lincoln can be real proud here. The first was when a transgender employee at Cultiva uh, was yelling and name-calling at one of the customers who happened to work for an organization that opposes protection of LGBTQ individuals. And later we know that the Cultiva, the barista got uh, fired, right? Um, International headlines. And the other one that the editorial was writing about was Ben Sass is gonna take a break from serving Runzas at Husker Games because he was confronted by um, someone that in his voting block that wanted more of a conversation with him. And you can take the article for what it is, it's an editorial. Probably the part I starred here is when it says, we're all Nebraskans and we're all better than perpetuating this division. I don't know anything necessarily about the faith of the four people in these stories. So that's not, set that aside for now. Um, I want to talk about those of us right here in our local expression of the church. Um, We know that we have people in our congregation in the Republican Party, and we have people in our congregation in the Democratic Party. We also know that some of you are ecstatic and thrilled to have a female pastor on staff, and some of you aren't quite sure I have the authority to stand here in this moment. We also know when we gathered in June uh, with our denominational meeting, there was an opportunity. Um, We talked about the upcoming vote that was coming uh, over First Covenant Minneapolis, and I learned as one of your newer, newer staff members, you could draw a line right down the middle of this room And some of you are pleased with the decision that was made over First Covenant Minneapolis, and some of you here now in September are still reeling over the decision that was made at our denominational meeting. In light of the differences among us, we have differences, and last Sunday you can catch that sermon, the differences are good and okay. In light of the differences among us, I want to challenge all of us on what it looks like to be part of this church community, the body, the local congregation. We're better 
at overcoming differences, not because we're all Nebraskans, but because we're all Christ followers. We need to be better at overcoming our differences. And one of the ways we grow and that growth is expressed as Christ followers, one of the ways that growth shows up in our life and becomes apparent is through our commitment or lack of commitment to the body, our congregations, to each other. My understanding of the New Testament is when people come to a real and a saving and a transforming faith in Jesus, it always has implications for how we as people relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. The closer we get to God, the closer our commitment to one another should be. We need to tease that out and what it looks like in practice because we know it and we agree in theory. We know that it's going to deal with our relationships with one another because God made us to be relational beings. We're going to look through this series at how we walk side by side even when we don't always see eye to eye. And when it comes to the New Testament, there's a bit of a notable transformation in the terms that are used for a gathering of an assembly, what we now call the church. It's less a group of individuals and more of a body. You see the body language in the New Testament for the gathering of God's people. It's important and it's emphasized. It's also worth noting that we use, Scripture uses terms, family terms, like we can say God is our father or you are my brother and sister in Christ. We use family language. That's pretty common in the New Testament. And the church as an institution and a large entity is actually played down in Scripture. And the word family to describe the church is played up in Scripture. One of the sad developments of the world that we, or the church at large that we have right now is the church has kind of become more of an institution. And you know that with institutions, you have hierarchies, you have administration, you have structures, you have rules, and so on. I want to encourage us to think about the church more of a family, in particular the local expression. This is a really big family sitting in the room right now. The idea of church as family resonates with the upcoming generation. Uh, there's a fear and a suspicion out there about institutions among postmoderns. There's a suspicion of institutions. So I think it's important that we emphasize the church as family to reach the people that we want to reach. We know that that's not easy because a lot of us who've been in the church a really long time have default settings that have built up over time and over the years that church is something we go to rather than something that we are. So this means that this organic connection between you and the brothers and sisters sitting in the room right now is actually quite weak. Church is somewhere you go, you sit down, you engage in a service, and exit as quickly as possible. That's a very poor representation of what I believe God wants us to be. We are family. The church experience in the book of Acts was very different. It was much richer than what we have today. It also included a lot more sacrifice than what we have today. Love, as I said last week, love requires sacrifice of our individualism, which could be a possible idol of our times. And so we need to be aware of individualism and institutionalization, institutionalism. Um, those are the thing, type of things that kill the family spirit. 
and how we share our lives together and do it well. Now, the New Testament letters as a whole recognize that relationships in the church exist, and they recognize that we can be in what I would call an, an uncomfortable tension between things that feel like they're tugging at us or things that feel like they're opposing each other. So today we're going to talk about two opposites and being a church community that would both exclude people and embrace people. They feel like they're opposites, the language that I'm picking. So when we talk about life together as a church family, who is invisible to you? Now this is much bigger than a church being split down the middle on the topic of homosexuality. So think bigger than that. We actually disagree on a whole lot of topics, social topics. It's more than just that. So if there is someone, what does it look like for you to see someone who is invisible to you? Statistically and most often in a church, it's the widows who are invisible to the rest of us. For you, maybe it's children or a refugee. If you consider yourself one of the younger people in this congregation, do you see the oldest members of our church? Do you even know who the oldest member is? So what does it mean for us to exclu exclude people and embrace people? And I'm asking that question as a church collectively, but also as individuals. Are we to be toward one another this accepting, welcoming, tolerant, non-judgmental group of people? Or are we supposed to be, have high standards of excellence and have moral integrity and virtue in our congregation? Is it either or? Is it both and? And if we're supposed to maintain some sort of synthesis and tension between these two opposites, how do we keep that tension between exclusion and embrace? So we're going to do this with three steps. We're going to look at the dilemma of a misapplied phrase in Scripture, the solution that I would say is simple, neat, and wrong, and then the third way, and how do we walk in that way? So you know as well as I do, the world gets frustrated with the church. We tend to talk out of both sides of our mouth, and the reality is sometimes we do, our founder said, do not judge or you too will be judged. And yet, we don't have a reputation in the church for being a group of people who are a real open community. There's other communities and people groups that are much more open than us, but it's not really the reputation of the church. So let's think about the words, do not judge. I had a conversation recently with someone not from this congregation who is really frustrated by their relative who happened to be a Christian. And this individual was unfaithful to his wife and he was preparing to marry the other woman, but he still flirted with his ex-wife. And this individual is so frustrated with them and then at the very end says, ah, but I know I'm not supposed to judge. Have you heard someone say that before about the church? Yes. I've heard that so many times, and it's as if we use the word judge, that, and as Jesus Christ would use it, we, it's synonymous with evaluate, or I'm not supposed to be discerning, or I'm not supposed to even choose, and we live into this phrase, oh, I'm not supposed to judge, almost as if as followers of Jesus, 
if we really believed that, you could never sit on a jury and you could never judge a pie contest. The command is quite often misused for the cause of tolerance. Jesus Christ is now the patron saint of live and let live, never make a moral or an ethical evaluation at all because that would be a breach of Jesus' command, do not judge. That's what's happening in the church in Corinth that Kurt read for us. There's a man, he's a church member, and he's having an affair with his stepmom who's not a member of the church. And there's some concern in the church about what's going on. And someone said, oh, but hey, judge not. I thought we were into grace in this church. I thought we were a humble and embracing church. And Paul comes over here and says, you people are so proud of being humble that you're practically arrogant. And then they jump over here. Oh, but Paul, Jesus taught us, do not judge. Jesus said, do not judge. So that can't possibly be what Matthew 7 is talking about, is it? In fact, I think it's quite absurd. And usually when we find in the Bible something that is made to sound absurd, it's usually because we've taken that statement out of context. And in this case, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says just a few sentences later, don't cast your pearls before swine, meaning don't spend time and energy teaching deep truths to people who hate the truth. But don't I have to make a decision in my mind and determine that without judging, without making some sort of evaluation? So the word judge, as Jesus used it, never meant don't make a moral distinction, don't make a moral evaluation. The immediate context of do not judge is really clear that Jesus is only prohibiting this kind of judgment that I wouldn't want applied to me first. His very next words in Matthew 7, for the way you judge, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in someone else's eye and don't notice the log in your own eye? So this is not, in Matthew 7, a call to suspend all evaluation. It's a warning, actually, that we are routinely stricter with others than we are with ourselves. We become the moral microscope when it comes to other people's faults, and we're blind to our own faults. We are the double standard. Then, let's consider the nature of a community that does require a basis for evaluation. I'm gonna, for the sake of example, I'm going extreme and exaggerating. I'm a member of the United Openness Club. We're open to all people everywhere. And one day, the board member comes to me and says, well, I've changed my views. I'm no longer open to men over 40 with brown eyes, but I still want to be on the board of directors. Will the United Openness Club allow that individual to stay? No, of course not. Every community, by some logical necessity, has to have boundaries and be exclusive in some way. As soon as a group of people defines itself and says, this is who we are, they become a group, it starts to make judgments regarding who is in and who is out. That's a natural piece of who we are as humans, which brings us to our simple solution to the problem of how we misuse the words, do not judge. And you're saying, oh, so I guess Jesus Christ 
didn't mean that we should uncritically suspend all moral evaluation because then we're twisting Jesus's words out of context and that would be irrational and it would be impossible for any human community to exist and be totally open, even the United Open Club has to be closed to some people and exclude some people. So the church, just like any other religion, any other community, has to be discriminating, right? That's what we can conclude. Jesus never meant that we should be so open-minded that our brains are leaking out. So we should require our members to, you know, measure up to the standards. We have standards, and if you don't want to live up to those standards, there's the door. It's simple. An easy solution. If you're not our kind of people, hit the road. Easy. Now here again, we've seen a lot of abuse in the church in the direction of what we call absurd inclusivism. But we've seen just as much abuse in the other direction with who we exclude. The church is well known for keeping people on their toes, shape up and ship out. Sometimes it even looks like the Apostle Paul saw things, and when you look at 1 Corinthians 5, he's, it seems like he saw things in a very cut and dry and simplistic way when he says, don't associate with sexually immoral people or greedy or idolaters or slanderers or drunkards or swindles. Don't even eat with those people. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove the wicked man from your, among yourselves. That sounds pretty simple and cut and dry to me. But when you look at this passage and the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that the apostles never correct one abuse by implementing a second abuse. They don't try to find some bland, happy, mediocre position. They always look at life in a new way, a third way. Not irrational openness and not traditionally religiously closedness. And they don't even look for a balance somewhere in the middle. It's always a third way. So Paul writes, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The same guy also wrote Colossians 3. So as those who've been chosen of God and dearly loved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with one another, forgive one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So on the one hand, we could say it sounds a little bit exclusive and even a little bit judgmental. We not, don't even associate with people. But on the other hand, this sounds very radically embracing and what we might think of as inclusive, to be compassionate and kind and hu humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And it's not that Paul and Jesus Christ and the other apostles are erratic or have split personalities. This is really a third way. And it's consistent never simplistic. It's consistent, but it's never simplistic. So let's talk about the third way and look at some of the ways that we can live this out. When Paul looks at the church and any of the young urban congregations in the ancient world, he sees that this is the start of God renewing and replanting the world. Paul and the other writers are envisioning a new world where people are no longer evaluated on the basis of their class or their bank account or their skin color or their marital or family status or how successful they've been or their family in which they're born or their gender or their education. Paul's calling the movement that Jesus Christ began a renewal, a 
renewal where there's no longer distinction between Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and is in all. So Paul will call these Colossian Christians to begin relating to another, one another on a new basis, to cherish one another as members of this new humanity, where you, don't, where you used to evaluate people based on their clothing or their intelligence, make only one thing the basis of evaluation, that is Christ is in all. Jesus Christ lived the perfect human life. He completed the mission that was given to Adam. He obeyed and he loved perfectly. He lived in this beautiful, unbroken harmony with God the Father. He satisfied our part of the agreement with God. And on the cross, Jesus was clothed with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. He was bearing the sins and the penalty of another. He paid my debt. He won my forgiveness. And he answered the complaint that God had against me. Paul says when you enter into this new community, you are stepping into this renewal. The total restoration of the human race has already begun as a result of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And this recreating, this rebirth of our human race has started now in this small, homely, almost secret society we call the church. So we need to be radically patient with one another. Look past the things that used to impress you and the things that used to disgust you about people. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so when there's someone in our body, when there's an organ or a limb or a part of us, a member that gets snagged up in sin, anyone forgets what's happening here and forgets that Christ is in all of us, you must recognize that this person caught up in sin now needs to be reclaimed. You mess up, I mess up, we all fall in many different ways, and then we have to get up. We have to say we're sorry, we have to repent, and we walk on. But if someone falls into a really obvious sin and doesn't get up, despite your pleading with them and you're attempting to see that Christ is all, if this person surrenders themselves to an old way of doing humanity and becomes an unrepenting, immoral person, they're a covetous, they're an idolater, they're a drunkard, they're a swindler, they're a reviler, then you got to take out the paddles and shock that person's heart into pumping in a new rhythm so they can engage with God. Even if you had to exclude someone or remove them, you must help them see that we are not a club, we are not a civic organization or a religious group, that we are part of a new humanity. And if you miss that, you miss everything. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, Deliver this person over to Satan for the destruction of his sinful nature so that he might come to his senses and repent and be restored. I don't like that that's in the Bible. Sounds kind of harsh to me, but it's in there. It's what it says. So let me give you a few guidelines and get a little more specific on how we implement this in our church. One, we are prone to judge each other harshly. And that's the real meaning of Jesus' words, do not judge or you too will be judged. So let's be careful that we give each other the benefit of the doubt 
let's be really careful not to create an environment of suspicion and mistrust and lying where we all have to stay on our toes. We have to deeply cherish one another in the church because Christ is in all. Number two, when we implement this kind of strategy where we might need to exclude someone from the congregation, this only happens when a person says, I know what I'm doing is totally wrong and I'm going to keep doing it anyway. That's when they need intensive care. They've slipped into a level of spiritual insanity and forgotten that Jesus Christ is Lord of all of us. The goal of that kind of exclusion, if it ever had to happen, is always true restoration of the offender. Number three, churches that don't get this involved in people's lives are arrogant. Paul says it four times. And we can be really prideful on the fact that we're humble and we're easygoing, but that means we've lost if we're that proud about being humble and easygoing here, that means we've lost track of the immense, immense privilege that it is to belong to the new humanity by grace. We weaken our understanding of grace. I just had a conversation yesterday with someone who feels judged by the church. And I thought, why are we not chasing after that person with the reckless love of God? They're not lost. Christ is in them as much as Christ is in you and me. Let's chase after people that feel like they've been judged. Number five, we don't have to judge people outside the church. And that means I have tremendous freedom to befriend people of different lifestyles, different morals, because I don't have to judge the world because that's God's job, not mine. And the last one is Christians become in practice what God already sees them to be and declares them to be, and that's from verse 10, the new self, that we are holy sons and daughters of God, and we are being restored. So the way I see this is that God has destined me and you for something great. I can't even imagine it. We can't wrap our heads around the great plans that God has of infinite joy and intimacy and somehow that we would each become fully human and fully as God has intended us to be. But I need the help of the community that will disagree with me, sometimes radically disagree with me. I need help to see the things that I can't see myself about myself or about God. And if you want independence and you don't want that kind of assistance and help from the community, if you're happy with the way that our world is as is right now, then you're right. We don't need to judge you. But if you want change, if you want to be part of God's plan to repair the world, if you want to be part of this new humanity, then I invite you to join us. You never, you have nothing to lose except for the old way of doing things. So as the band comes up, I'm asking you to think and first apply this in your own life. This is a hard word. So are there places where animosity and hostility have found their way into your relationships with people sitting in this room? 
Are there places where animosity and hostility have found their way into your relationships here? You can pray about that. And then the second question is, what is God's invitation to you? I'm going to give you some time to pray about what God might be inviting you to do 